0: The Sermons of St. Francis de Sales for Advent and Christmas Continuing his sermon for Christmas Eve on the union of the divine and human natures of our Lord How happy we would be to devote all our efforts to the accomplishment of God's will for us by the renunciation and complete surrender of our own will with no other concern but to conform our will to His By this means we would obtain from His goodness all that we could possibly desire. He whose only concern is to do the divine will obtains from His goodness all that He needs. To the extent that one accomplishes this holy will, God does His, as it is written, the Lord does the will of those who fear Him. At the moment of His incarnation, our dear Savior saw all that He was to suffer, the whips and lashes, the nails and thorns, all the injuries and blasphemies that would be spewed out upon him. Extending his sacred arms, and offering himself in unparalleled love to bear all these things, he embraced them and placed them in his heart with such love that he began from that moment to feel all that he would afterwards suffer during his passion. From that moment, by a complete detachment, he deprived himself of all the consolations that he could have received in this life. The only exceptions were those of which he could not deprive himself. For our salvation and redemption, he subjected the lower part of his soul to suffer sadness, pain, fear, apprehension, and dread. He did all this not through constraint or because he could not do otherwise, but willingly and with full determination the better to manifest his love to us. Certainly all these sufferings were not necessary for our salvation, for a single act of love, a single loving sigh from his sacred heart, would have been of infinite price, infinite value, infinite merit. A single one of his sighs would have been enough to redeem not only this world, but a thousand worlds and a thousand thousand human and angelic natures, if there had been that many, and had they sinned. Not only a single sigh, a single one of his tears would have been enough to redeem all of them and to satisfy divine justice, since it would have been shed from the infinite love of an infinite person. Our Lord merited more by the breath of a single loving sigh than all the saints, all the cherubim, and all the seraphim could ever merit. God was more honored by a single act of love and adoration offered by the most blessed soul of the Savior at the moment of its incarnation than He has ever been or ever will be by all the acts of love and adoration of all creatures, both angelic and human. Yet our dear Master did not wish to redeem us by a single sigh. Rather, He willed to suffer a thousand pains and labors paying in full rigor of justice for our faults and iniquities, teaching us, by his example, spiritual sobriety, detachment from all consolations, so as to live according to reason and not according to our appetites and affections. That is why we are in the habit of saying to young girls about to enter the monastery that religion is a school of abnegation of all wills, a cross on which we must be crucified, We come here to suffer, not be consoled. If you desire sugar and sweets, you had better take yourself to a candy store. For here, we eat only bitter food, painful to the flesh, but always profitable to the heart. I always say to these girls, Come now, my dear daughter, what are you really looking for in religion? Consolations? Yes. (laughs) Then you had better reconsider. Or you are deceiving yourself if you expect to be consoled here, to receive and taste spiritual sweets. Such conduct is insupportable to those who know even the least bit about true devotion. Come here to live in profound humility and complete resignation, ready to accept with equanimity of spirit both desolations and consolations, sweetness and tribulations, dryness and repugnances, If God gives you consolations or sweets, kiss His hand and thank Him very humbly, but do not remain there. Go further and humble yourself. Certainly it is a great pity to see our Lord suffer so much, deny Himself all the pleasures and consolations He could have received even in the midst of His sufferings, choosing to accept only those of which He could not be deprived. While we, on the other hand, are so in love with these pleasures and consolations that we seem to work only to receive them. However little our consolations may be, we take such great pleasure in reflecting on them and delighting in them that we end up doing nothing worthwhile. These consolations are the delight of certain people who are much too eager for them. They are not really necessary. You are certainly no better for having them. After all, God grants them to both the just and to sinners. Sometimes he even gives many to people in the state of sin, deprived of grace. Why then cling to them so tenaciously? Consider, I beg you, this little newborn infant in the manger at Bethlehem. Listen to what he says to you. Look at the example he gives you. He has chosen the most bitter, the poorest things imaginable for his birth. Whoever remains close to this manger during the Christmas octave will melt with love in seeing this little infant in so poor a place, weeping and trembling from the cold. You will see how reverently the glorious virgin your mother kept looking at his heart, all aflame with love, as she wiped the sweet tears which flowed so softly from the gentle eyes of this blessed babe. How she ran after the sweet fragrance of his virtues, Behold, God incarnate. How beautiful it has been to reflect on the very profound mystery of our Savior's incarnation. But all that we can possibly know and understand from this reflection is as nothing. We could very well repeat what a certain wise... ...by an ancient philosopher that contained very lofty and obscure thoughts. He frankly admitted... This book is so erudite, so difficult, that I scarcely understand anything of it. The little that I do understand is very beautiful, but I believe that what I do not understand is even more so. He was right. Using similar words while considering the mystery of the Incarnation, we could say, This mystery is so exalted and so profound that we understand next to nothing about it. All that we do know and understand is very beautiful indeed, but we believe that we do not comprehend that part is even more so. Finally, someday in heaven above, we will grasp it fully. There we will celebrate with an incomparable delight this great feast of Christmas, of the Incarnation. There we will see clearly all that took place in this mystery. We will eternally bless him, who, from his exalted state, lowered himself in order to exalt us. May God grant us this grace. So be it. Amen. So be it. Sermon 7. The Incarnation. Sermon for Christmas Midnight Mass, December 25, 1622. Among the Solemnities of Holy Church, There are three which have been celebrated at all times, and which have their original source in that great feast of Passover which was observed in the Old Law. These three feasts are all called Passage or Passover. Today's feast was instituted to commemorate our Lord's passage from His divinity to our humanity. The second passage is that from His Passion and Death to His Resurrection. His passage from mortality to immortality, which we celebrate all during Holy Week and at Easter. The third passage is celebrated at Pentecost, the day on which our Lord adopted the Gentiles and permitted them to pass from infidelity to the happiness of becoming His well-beloved children, the greatest happiness possible for the Church. All these feasts find their source in today's mystery but you may say at this point that it is not usual to preach at night. I reply that it was indeed the custom in the primitive church while it was in its first flower and vigor. St. Gregory bears witness to this in his homily for this day. The early Christians even said the three nocturnes of Matins separately, rising three times during the night for this purpose. Moreover, they went to choir seven times a day to recite the office thereby fulfilling verse 164 of Psalm 119. St. Augustine says that they even preached three times on this feast, first at midnight mass, then at the mass, and finally at the mass during the day. So great was the fervor of those early Christians that nothing wearied them. The least among them was of greater value than the best of religious of today. We have become so cold since those early days that we must now shorten the mass the office, and sermons. But this is not to the point. Rather, I intend to speak to you first of how we ought to believe the mystery of Christ's incarnation, which the Church sets before us this day, and then of what we should hope for and do in light of this faith. In all that we do or plan, if we are wise, we keep its purpose or goal in mind, for we should have one, For example, if someone intends to build a house or a palace, he must first consider whether it is to be a lodging for a vine dresser or peasant, or if it is for a lord, since obviously he would use entirely different plans depending on the rank of the person who is to live there. Now the Eternal Father did just that when he built this world. He intended to create it for the incarnation of his Son, the Eternal Word. The end or goal of his work was thus its beginning, for divine wisdom had foreseen from all eternity that his word would assume our nature in coming to earth. This has been taken from the Sermons of St. Francis de Sales for Advent and Christmas, translated by Nuns of the Visitation and edited by Father Louis S. Fiorelli, OSFS published in 1987 by Tan Books and Publishers Incorporated, Rockford, Illinois, and aired with permission of the publisher. This book may be purchased online at www.tanbooks.com or by calling toll-free 1-800-437-5876.